So if you would, open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And God's inspired and inerrant word reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it known to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Father, we just ask a blessing upon the reading of Your Word. And Father, would You bring clarity to it? Would you bring clarity to our minds, to my mind? Would you organize my thoughts? Would you organize our, our, our thoughts as we prepare ourselves to receive what, what you have for us this morning? And Father, would your spirit illuminate this text for us? Not only so that we know how, what, how, how to understand it, but also know how to apply it to our life. Pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The wrath of God been a bit of a struggle on this particular message, and so we'll see what happens. But the title of itself is not all that attractive, is it? But the next section, as we left the introduction, this next section will, will, will carry us all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And it's really Paul's indictment to all of humanity. And so it will be some tough slogging over the next few chapters as we see Paul's indictment while he builds to make his case for justification by faith alone. And so I do want to read chapter 3, verse 20, because this is how this section, this next section will end. And this is why Paul is starting the way that he is here today. But he says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so what Paul seems to be like a, uh, sometimes as I was a carpenter, you got your pneumatic nailer out and you got your air nailer out and, and sometimes you held the trigger just a little bit too long and it went like brrrr and you shot a bunch of nails. It seems as though that's what Paul is doing here as he's pounding on this nail over and over and over of uh, the need for humanity, uh, for justification by faith alone. That we in ourselves cannot do anything because the law itself condemns us because we cannot possibly fulfill the letter of the law. And that in of itself can bring us great distress. And so Paul does let us go down that path of distress just a bit, if you will, before he pulls us back up uh, with the beauty of the gospel. And we will get to the gospel today, this morning also, because every message must end with the gospel. And so we will end there, but first we need to focus in on the wrath of God. And so I want to begin with the, with the last verse that I just read, in fact, the last phrase of what I just read, and begin with the so that. I'm trying not to be dramatic about the so that. I guess I, I can be. But this is the reason why it says Paul is writing what he is writing, so that they are without excuse, Paul says. 
They are without an excuse. And so I want to end where, or start where Paul is ending and saying, listen, all these folks that I'm talking about, they're without excuse. They, they are inexcusable in their knowledge and in their belief of God. And he's going to give us two ways uh, in, 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 in why he can make this claim, why he can say that they are inexcusable. And he does it in verse 20 by saying, because that which is known about God is evident in nature. That's the, that's the first excuse that you must eliminate. You cannot say that, you're not, that God is not knowable, that you don't know about God, because creation itself declares the glory of the Lord. Second point in verse, two, or verse 19, it says, because that which is known about God is evident within each and every person. God has put it into each and every person to know God, to have a desire for God. And these two together, Paul is now saying, put these two together, you are inexcusable. I am inexcusable in my knowledge of God. And he starts out, I'm going to start out in verse 20 because I'm going to work this thing backwards this morning. And in verse 20, he says that God is understood through what is made in nature. Psalm 19.1 is probably a psalm, the verse that has come to your mind already possibly. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And if we just look at those two parts that complement each other, the heavens themselves are declaring the glory. And I tell you what, there's one thing that you see out on the bay in the wintertime, especially when we lived right on the bay. The sunsets were absolutely unbelievable. And, uh, and you look at those sunsets, and you can just see God just, just crying out and making himself known. And when you look at the expanse, we lived on the prairie, we lived in the mountains, we, we lived in the Midwest, and now we live where the water goes on forever. And everywhere you look at the expanse of God. And you feel so small, you feel so little those times the first as you head up into the mountains and you just feel like a little ant and you're just in awe of the magnitude of God. It is in these ways that God is making himself known to every single person out there. I remember when we had uh, left Ohio and moved to Kansas. And uh, we moved to Kansas and... Uh, um, I went there for school, and, and school hadn't started yet. It just mom had passed away, and it was in between school, and I was, you know, lamenting that. And um, I told Cheryl, this is what I have to do when I need to think. I, I need to head to the mountains soon. But in this particular time, it was like, I got to go to the mountains. We're so close. And so I remember driving to the mountains, Courtney, Cheryl, and I. And as we were there in Estes Park, I probably told you this story this before, uh, but we were in Estes Park, Colorado, and the next morning we got up, and I got up early. I went outside before the sun came up, and I went outside the hotel, and there was another guy sitting there. And I was like, Lord, I really don't want to talk to that guy, but I can see him looking at me. I'm not going to look at him because I don't want to talk to him. But, well, he came over, and he started talking. And, and interestingly enough, he was making his way to Seattle, and he was going to Seattle because he was in search of discovering God. And he went to Seattle, that's before I lived on the, on the, on the uh, West Coast and, and did not realize uh, uh, the, the, the nature worshipers that, that you have in the Pacific Northwest. But he was going to some place out there that could help him discover God, whatever that God was, through creation. <clears throat> and I remember talking to him 
about that. And, and I, too, am a very uh, contemplative mystic that I call myself. And, and I, 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 too, gravitate towards nature uh, when I need uh, to be re-energized, when I need to be filled up once again with God. And I told this man, I said, you know, <clears throat> it is in creation itself that I, too, find God. It is in creation itself that points to God. I used him this example. Uh, probably my prized possession in life is a quilt that my mom made for Cheryl and I for our anniversary, I mean, for our, uh, what do you call it, wedding. For our wedding, yeah. It's close. You have to have a wedding than an anniversary. So it's been a, it's been a while. But I still have the quilt. Maybe not anymore. Um, but she made a quilt, and it's a bird quilt, a bird from each 50 states. You don't need to hear all that story, but, you know, I love animals. And anyways, I, I told this man about this quilt, and I said, I see this quilt, and it reminds me of mom. The quilt isn't mom, but the quilt reminds me and points me to the creator of that quilt. And in the same way, that is creation. As we go out into the mountains, into the oceans, wherever, wherever you like nature, and as you see nature, it's in nature itself that God makes himself evident. And I understand. And then two years later, we ended up living on the outside or on the other side of the mountain of Seattle. And I often interacted with people who literally and truly worshipped creation. I had great conversations with them, but it is in the creation itself that we can feel God, that we can sense God, that we can know God. So many people, they go off into nature, they go off into creation, and they enter into it, but they never allow creation to enter within them. And as you sit there all by yourself through the long nights, long ways from any road, and creation just invites you and engulfs you in such a way that you're overcome with the presence of God. That is what Paul is saying. If you open yourself up, to the creation that is there. Sometimes, you know, it's so hard to enjoy creation in a world, and here it's not that built up, but compared to some places it certainly is, that we lose sight of how God reveals himself through creation. It does so much for me, and I guess that's why as I read a verse like this, it becomes so evident that there is a creator. Why is there something rather than nothing and when we look at the creation itself, we see the very hand of God. Paul says, O man, O woman, creation itself declares of my glory. You cannot deny my existence. Verse 19, <clears throat> Paul says also that God is known because <clears throat> God has made it evident within them. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident. It's clear. That's easily known within them. For God has made it evident. God has caused it to be known. So it, 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 God has caused it to be known within each and every one of us that there is a God, that there is a creator, that is something. You might have heard the terminology, a God-shaped hole or a God-shaped hole in the heart. And that people say that in a way that there's a desire within you to long for something, to seek for something. Why does a person who considers themselves an atheist, a humanist, whatever, still desire to be filled with something? And, and, and the Bible would tell us that is because 
God has placed it into the heart. Ezekiel or uh, um, Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in the heart of men and women. And it is that that desires and that pulls us. I was reading a scientific paper the other day. And um, in it, the, the, paper, the, the author there quoted Charles Darwin. In one of his books that he wrote, and it went like this, he said that I fully subscribe to the judgment of those writers who maintain that all the differences is between man and the lower animals, the moral sense or or conscious is by the most important part. So what what, what, what Darwin is saying, that what separates us from the rest of the animal world is we have a conscience, we have a sense, there's something within us some people can call it ethics. In fact, that's what this author goes on to make this claim for ethics. And it's this ethics within us. Where does that ethics come from? Where does that moral compass come from? Where does that sense of belonging, sense of, uh, of, of right and wrong come from? And Paul would tell us here that it's because God has placed it within us. This author went on. I'm not going to read the quote I was going to read. It might be too long. But the, the, this, this author came to this part right here. And he said that I propose that the capacity for ethics is a necessary attribute of human nature. He was arguing for evolution. I believe that the capacity for ethics is a necessary attribute of human nature, whereas moral code are products of the culture of evolution. Now, I would certainly agree with the last portion of that, that our moral code is often set by the culture, and I find it interesting sometimes that when I ask, talk to people that do not believe in a God and, and, and you talk, but well, what restrains you? What restrains you from doing whatever you want to do? Well, that wouldn't be nice. Who cares? You're going to die and you're going to go right back to dirt in the ground and nobody's going to know nothing from nothing. Why do you care what kind of legacy you're leaving? It makes absolutely no sense. And so I would agree that our moral code is set by the culture at large, which is which is very fluid, which is very, shift, was very shifting. But this first part, the, attri- that the ethics is a necessary attribute of human nature. Who says that? Why does this author think that they can make that statement? It's an attribute of human nature? Well, where does that come from? See, the humanist or the atheist cannot answer that question. They're still searching for the answer of that, and we have it, that God has placed it within us. And that's what Paul is saying here this morning as he's going to pivot now, or I'm going to pivot now, to the wrath of God. Think about the wrath of God as harsh, and indeed it is. But Paul is saying the evidence is clear from nature. The evidence is clear from within yourself. Therefore, denying God, you do deserve this just wrath of God. There is no excuse for those who find themselves under the wrath of God, Paul is saying here. Because the evidence is clear before you. <clears throat> so verse 19. For, that's Gar, so it's pulling in verse four, 17. We might go there. Uh, so for the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and against all unrighteousness towards the man who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God, the wrath of God is literally just divine punishment based upon God's angry judgment. And these are words we do not like to talk about in churches. 
But it is, that, that is what the wrath of God is. And I might offer you to this morning, just as God has a, a perfect love, and God is perfect love, so also God has a perfect wrath. Not a, my type of wrath, not your type of wrath, who isn't always rational in our anger. It's not that at all. But a God of perfect love also has a God of perfect wrath. In fact, um, I, I'm going to turn to Exodus just to make this point. I wasn't sure if I was going to, but I feel like I'm on a roll, so I'm going to. <laughs> Exodus chapter 32. We see the wrath of God in the Old Testament indeed, and we try to separate these two. But the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we come across this, the golden calf story. We know the account, right? And so I just want to briefly uh, go over this story. And it starts out, you know, as they took the Israelites out of Egypt, and they followed God throughout the depths for quite some time. And God led them as a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by the day. And here God calls Moses up on Mount Sinai, calls him up on the mountain to meet with him. Because at that time, God met with certain peoples before the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all humanity. And as, God went, and as Moses went up on the mountain, Moses was there just a little bit longer, and the people got about, a bit nervous about it. And so they said, Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know not what has become of him. We don't know what has happened to him. And so Aaron, make us a God. We need a God to follow. There's this desire within us to serve something and to follow something. And Aaron says, tear off the gold rings which are on your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And all the people tore off all the gold rings and things like that. And Aaron took this from their hand. Listen to the absurdity. Took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Think about that. They literally took their jewelry off of their body. They literally seen Aaron mold this thing into a golden calf, and they worshiped this thing. That is the desire, that is the absolute need to worship. I believe that humanity needs to worship as much as they need to eat or drink water, substance. And here we see a picture of that. And so as God is up there and he sees what is happening, and he says, Moses, your people. He says, the people that you brought out, Moses. These are, God says, Moses, these are your people. You brought them up out of there. Look what they have done. Go down at once for your, <clears throat> for your people who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. And God says, that's it. I've had it. I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses, with you, I'm going to start over. I'm going to start over with you, Moses, and I'm going to try it again. I'm going to get a do-over. And Moses pleads for the people and says, why, Lord? Yahweh, why does your anger burn? Your people. Moses, no, no, these are your people. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why would you do this thing? And then the Egyptians will laugh at you. The Egyptians will laugh at us because you brought us out only to kill us in the desert. And Moses says, 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself. By yourself. We'll pick that up in two weeks. But what we see here is we see the anger, the righteous anger, wrath of God. Moses goes down, and Moses then becomes angry with Aaron. And Aaron says, I just told the people that give me your earrings, and I threw them in the fire, and out comes a calf. Just like that. It sounds like a two-year-old, doesn't it? I have no idea, Mom, what happened. The dog just ate whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Moses says, dedicate yourself today to the Lord. For every man has been against his son and against his brother. The story goes on, and many people die by the sword, by the wrath of God. Moses says, let me go back up on the mountain. Perhaps, perhaps I can make an atonement for your sins. Moses does indeed go back up to the mountain, and he says, God, don't blot out their sin. Don't blot out their name out mine. God says, no, Moses, every man, every woman must answer for themselves. We see the justice of God in this wrath. Yet many who did not, as Moses called, anybody who's on Yahweh's side come over here and the others died. We see the wrath of God totally and completely justified in this story right here. The New Testament is no different. Paul says it is evident within you. Either you pledge allegiance, you pledge yourself completely and wholly to God, or you will face the wrath of God. It is quite clear. There it is. Paul says here in verse 19, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, just unveiled, uncovered, shown from heaven. Could very well mean, I'm not going to do a deep dive on that, but it could very well mean, uh, you know, just, just as it comes from God. This, this is where this wrath, this is a higher power type wrath coming down against all ungodliness, unrighteousness, synonyms probably. Some like to take the ungodliness as the four first ten commandments and then the rest, the other six, the unrighteous. But I don't know. I think he's just saying the same thing twice, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Now, right here is exactly what the people uh, there in the golden calf found themselves doing was suppressing the truth. And Paul is saying that's exactly what God's wrath is going to come across and come down upon. Those who suppress the truth literally to hold down. Those who stop the truth from going forward. Those who suppress the truth in a way that leads to unrighteousness. In Romans chapter 1, verse 32, the last verse of this first chapter, Paul says that although they know, they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul is saying this is suppressing the truth. We hear it in and out of our churches all over the place. Those who not only practice things that are specifically and completely and clearly condemned by the Word of God, not only do they give approval to those practices as we will see in the next coming weeks, but they themselves practice them themselves and approve of others in doing them. This is the wrath 
that Paul is focusing upon that is going to come upon the people. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, in the revelation of the righteous judge, righteous judgment of God. Not only are they experiencing wrath at the moment, and, and we do that in many different ways, specifically we experience the wrath of God through the natural process of death is the most obvious one, is it not? We know that those who die in Christ go forever to be in the Lord, and yet we know that death was not necessarily going to be a part of the original plan, and that itself God does carry out his wrath in such a way. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we are told here <clears throat> that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And in 3, 5, in the third chapter, the fall chapter, we see that the serpent comes and tells the Adam and Eve, says, you, you eat that fruit, you will not surely die. You will not die instantly at the moment, he is saying. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now listen, knowing good and evil. On this port, certain, the serpent and Paul certainly agree. We know the truth. We have it within us. We have it within creation. We have it within ourself that God has placed there because we are created in his image. We are without excuse. On July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached what may well be his most famous or infamous sermon. Few have read the sermon. Many only know of the title, and the title by itself may be why many will not read this sermon. The title of the sermon is, as you guessed it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I would, I would encourage each and every one of you to read that sermon. I, would, I, I, was almost, I almost debated just reading it this morning for you. And it's written in that Puritan form and fashion in that English. It's, it's, it's a beautiful written sermon. But it's not a beautiful sermon. See, many want to cast judgments and are offended by the very title of this sermon or by the notion of the suggestion that there are people who find themselves in the hands of an angry God. In fact, one well-known author preacher wrote a book to counter this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Well, I want to offer to you that both of them are true. I don't see, they're, they're, not, they're not in competition with each other. Sinners indeed do they find themselves in the hands of an angry God, and sinners do indeed find themselves in the hands of a loving God. See, we have a way sometimes of what we want to emphasize within the biblical text. Do we want to emphasize wholly and completely only that God is love? Or what kind of loving God does not have righteous justice to pour out upon the earth? The two go together. In fact, I would offer to you, you cannot have one without the other. I think you need them both. But Edwards wrote in this sermon, when you're speaking of the wrath of God being withheld, he wrote this, and I, I quote, The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty it is its course when once it is let loose. It is true. 
that judgment against evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance has been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mightily, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods and the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with an omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. This is the picture that, that, that Edwards paints throughout this whole sermon and that, he, that we are indeed, his whole point, is held by the mere pleasure of God. And this is the point that Paul is going to drive home as we continue through this chapter, the next two chapters actually, and that is that outside of the mere pleasure of God holding us, we too would fall into that very pit of hell and under the wrath of God. But listen, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way at all. God is evident in creation. God is evident in each and every person. I want to jump back to last week in verse 17. I want you to notice, if you have your Bibles open, this is why you need to be looking at them because uh, these these little points can be meaningful. In verse 17, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Verse 18, same, same language. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You see that. The, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven to heaven. Paul is clearly giving a choice. We have a choice to make. Do we want to embrace the righteousness of God, or are we going to accept the wrath of God? That is the decision that is before each and every person here this morning. John 3.36 tells us something very similar. He, God, or the person, people, we, who believe in, in the Son has life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on us. See, a message on the wrath of God would indeed be horrifying if there wasn't the love of God that will offset the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul will tell us, oh, I could read a lot here. I'll just stick with 25. Speaking of Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, just, just a big, long word that just how sins are forgiven. As a public propitiation in his blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness upon, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins that had been previously committed. See, Paul is telling us that this propitiation is a means of salvation, and the wrath of God did indeed pour out upon his son on that cross, that whoever believes in him will indeed have eternal life. 
1 John 4.10 tells us that in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. How did he love us? He sent us his son to be the, to be the propitiation, to be the covering over, to be the means of expiation, the means of the forgiveness of sins. The means by which sins are forgiven is the work of the gospel. It's the gospel of God that we started this Romans with. It's the gospel of God. Paul is making it very clear. Creation itself points to God. It's evident within us. God has provided the way through his son. The other option is wrath. And so we might also be left with wondering, how much is enough to believe? How much is enough? Creation, the sense that within us, is that enough? I'm often struck by that. In fact, I wrestled with that. In fact, I might dare say that some mountain goats up in the mountains might actually be scarred of my wrestling with that question. (laughs) What about those who have never heard the gospel? Is the creation enough? Is it evident within you? Is that enough? I don't have those answers. I know the scriptures tell us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We know that. We have that before us. You just heard that message again this morning. In fact, I would offer to you that our concern is not so much about those who have never heard, though we should do everything we possibly can to get the gospel to them. But ultimately, that is God's business. But what you need to be concerned about is you and everyone just like you and I who live in a Western church, who have grown up hearing the gospel day after day after day, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we've heard that God is love. We've heard about the wrath of God, maybe. It's the same sun that melts the snow, hardens the clay. I think there are many people who have heard the message over and over and over again. They believe the message, but they have not truly accepted the message. They're not truly surrendered to it. In fact, that sun that melts the snow, that softens the heart, is actually hardening the hearts of many people who might find themselves or consider themselves Christian. And so I would ask you this morning to examine yourself. Is it just a belief system that you have from a distance? Are you just observing the mountains from the distance? Are you allowing the mountains to just totally engulf you, if I can use my way of thinking? Have you truly embraced Christ? Or is it just something that you've gone through the motions of? Paul here is warning us. The wrath of God will fall upon all those who do not confess Jesus as Lord. In verse 28, it tells us that they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And God gave them over. I'm afraid that many find themselves there this morning. And so I want to leave you with that. You know, it says that they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And we'll get there in the future. But as I was thinking about that verse a little bit this week, it's like there comes a point in time where it seems as though God withdraws his hand, withdraws his favor. You've heard the message over and over and over again. And I wonder if there's anybody like that here this morning. Have you heard the message over and over and over again? Are you truly surrendered to it? It's something for you to reflect upon. 
The next couple chapters are going to be hard. They're going to be difficult. We're going to, we're going to be wading through some difficult territory. It may be a time for you to have some reflection. Where is your relationship with Christ? Where is it? Lord, I thank you for this time this morning. And that felt heavy, Lord. I didn't. But I'll just leave it at that. Father, you search the hearts and the minds. Father, it is you that we desire not just to know, but to experience, to breathe in, to breathe out, to move in such a natural way within your will that we hardly recognize ourselves. Father, would you have your way among us here this morning? And Father, for that person that would be wrestling with that very question, would you give them the courage to completely, totally surrender their heart and life to you? Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.